Hey everyone, this is Cobain the Christian. Before getting into the subject of today's video, I just wanted to make a couple of announcements. First of all, I have started a podcast, which is the audio form of all of the videos that I've uploaded recently and all of the videos that I will continue to upload. Now, I'm using Anchor as my podcast platform, and through Anchor, my podcast is distributed to other platforms automatically. It's a very intuitive and um, uh, free system, so it's quite remarkable, I think. Uh, so if you are interested in downloading just the audio or just listening via audio while you're driving, uh, please do check that out. Uh, also, if you have not yet made a contribution to my Patreon, uh, but are financially in a good spot and enjoy my content regularly, uh, please do consider making a contribution to my Patreon for $10 and plus. Uh, you will get the complete recordings of interviews, debates, and so forth. Uh, as I've said before, I don't like asking for donations. I don't like putting up the advertisements, uh, but it is important insofar as I'm investing the amount of time um, that I am into this channel. And hopefully, God willing, at, cer at a certain point, I'll be able to get enough money via patronage that I'll be able to reduce the number of ads because I do know that they are obnoxious. Uh, now, if you are not interested or able to donate uh, a $10, one possibility is to make a contribution of 99 cents through my podcast platform below. You can do that on Patreon, but it's a bit less intuitive. So if you just want to contribute $1 a month, that would be very much appreciated. That does add up in terms of helping me to balance my financial books while still doing this uh, on a very regular basis. So with all of that said, I want to get into the subject of today's video, which is the Gospel of Matthew. Now this is going to be a little bit more old style Cobain in that I suppose there is an apologetic aspect to the this historical question. Uh, there is the conflict between biblical criticism and so-called conservative approaches to the New Testament. But what I want to emphasize before I get into any of the particulars of that subject is that whatever anybody says and whoever says it, think hard about their argument. It does not matter how widely held a position is, or how owned and venerable in terms of its influence a particular argument is, the rules of logical validity do not change. The most common error in any discipline, in my experience, the overwhelmingly most common error is simple and basic logical errors, most commonly a non sequitur. Someone will say something, they'll give a premise, and then they'll draw a conclusion from it that just does not follow logically. Or very often, they will give one premise and then state their conclusion, but there is a hidden premise which is open to critical analysis. Now, if we're going to have a coherent view of the world, and a coherent approach not only to texts, but to all questions of truth or falsehood, we need to be conscious of the way that our process of reasoning is shaped. Now, I think one thing that we should keep in mind is that the notion of academic consensus, taken alone, is not an argument for anything. One premise, taken alone, does not entail anything other than itself. So here's the premise many people will often use in many situations. The vast majority of New Testament scholars say X. Well, very often this is just dropped. This is just said, and Christians do it too. I used, I used to do this. This is just said as if the conclusion one was to draw from it is obvious. But what is the conclusion? Let's articulate that conclusion precisely. The bane of careful thought is unstated premises and conclusions that facilitate a lack of precision and clarity in what exactly one means. What exactly is the argument being made? Is the argument being made that the vast majority of scholars say X, therefore X is more likely than not to be true? Is that the argument? Well, if you want to make that argument, you are free to do so, but it has to be 
argued. One premise taken alone does not actually entail anything. You've just thrown a fact out there, but what exactly does that mean? And if you want to make that argument that the vast majority of scholars believe X, therefore X is more likely than not to be true, be my guest, but keep in mind that you're going to need another premise uh, and you're going to need to show a positive correlation of the majority of scholars in a given discipline and truth. Now, it's up to you to decide how to show that. Myself, I don't think that the consensus of scholars in many disciplines really means anything at all. I don't think it has any positive correlation with what the truth of things is likely to be. Now, of course, this depends in part on what the what kind of question that we're asking. But with questions like the New Testament, where we're often assessing qualitative issues, where one process of logical reasoning is pretty complicated and requires extreme precision, logical errors are just everywhere. And they are often absurd, especially with respect to this synoptic problem. So take, for example, the relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I cannot tell you how unbelievably common it is for a commentator in the New Testament to think that they have given evidence for the priority of the Gospel of Mark, when in reality, the only thing that they've done is given evidence that the Gospel of Mark is the mediating point between Matthew and Luke. So, for example, if you show a similarity between the Gospel of Matthew and then and the Gospel of Mark, and then you show a similarity between the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, and you show that Matthew and Luke share different parts of Mark, but they don't share each other, many scholars will take that and they'll say, oh, I, this is evidence for the primacy in uh, terms of what was written first of the Gospel of Mark. Now, whether or not you believe in the primacy of the Gospel of Mark, this is just logically invalid. Because there is a difference between showing that the Gospel of Mark is the mediator between Matthew and Luke and showing that Matthew and Luke independently copied from Mark or used Mark as a source. Mark could well have abridged aspects of the Gospel of Matthew and then the Gospel of Luke used Mark instead of using Matthew directly. In fact, that's much closer to what I think the truth of things is. But my point isn't to make a case for that at this point in my argument. It is merely to say that the fact that so many scholars are unable to distinguish these two hypotheses does not suggest anything optimistic about their capacity to reason accurately from complex networks of premises to a specific conclusion, which is why I have fundamentally, especially in biblical studies, ceased to take academic consensus seriously at all. Um, the arguments made are often just false. Uh, another thing that we have to keep in mind is that many times a particular thing is said by one scholar and it is quoted by another scholar. So the scholar two cites scholar one and then scholars three and four cite scholar two and so on and so forth. And it appears in the literature that there is a vast network of interlocking citations establishing and providing evidence for this one fact, when in reality, if you traced it back to the original source, which would be an incredibly boring and mundane job, which is why people don't often do it, you would find that it all just goes back to one person. And that person may or may not be correct. Sometimes in the sciences, a problem with one's model is as simple as somebody measured something wrong 60 years ago and it was uncorrected for several decades. This is, by the way, that specific thing actually happened in, in the Coconino sandstone. I don't want to go into this right now, but the um, uh, measurements of the sand dunes and the distance between the individual wave lines in the Coconino sandstone were simply made incorrectly several decades ago. And much um, argument about uh, the nature of the Coconino sandstone has been made on that basis. But when people go up there and they measure it directly, they found, oh, guy 60 years ago made a mistake. So this is why I've ceased to take it seriously. So let's get into the subject of Matthew's Gospel itself. One thing we have to keep in mind in considering the origin of the Gospel is that the early church, and by the early church I'm referring specifically to those extant writers that we have from the first three centuries, the early church had an access to a wealth of documents which no longer are extant, meaning that there is no present manuscript tradition. At some point people stopped copying 
that manuscript tradition. And these early documents address the history of the apostolic church and other related issues. For example, you have Papias, Papias whom we have in quotations made by other writers, but he had an exposition of the oracles of the Lord. We also have early Christian writers like Quadratus, who were quoted by some other Christian writers, but whose writings are unfortunately lost to us today. Now, the important thing to remember here, one important thing to remember, is that these documents were not only available and accessible to the early church writers, but they were all also available and accessible to their critics. So one should be very careful in constructing a novel conclusion on the basis of the limited evidence that we have today, or even worse, in a way that fundamentally contradicts all the evidence that we have extant. Uh, the early church, in many ways, was in a better position to know about certain aspects of their history than contemporary scholars are. Second, this is incredibly important. The apostolic church existed as a network of interconnected city churches, and there were vibrant lines of communications open between the city churches. So this is why it's important. If you look at New Testament biblical criticism and you look at the ideas that they present for why each of the synoptic gospels and to some degree John are shaped the way that they are, because this is what we're trying to do. We want an explanatory model to explain why the data comes to us in the way that it comes to us, why it's shaped the way that it's shaped. Why does Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the text that they do? When you look at the world, the historical situation, which is described in many of these academic works, you discover a world which certainly never existed. For example, you discover a world of independent, isolated local communities which receive, quote-unquote, Jesus tradition from a missionary or a central source, and then they transmit it and talk about it um, among themselves for an extended period of time. Then, having talked among themselves and extended and extemporaneously performed this Jesus tradition, it was turned into a gospel or a written document about the life of Jesus for that particular community. The problem here is that we know the church did not function this way. We have plenty of evidence from the first century church to demonstrate that it did not function this way. The letters of the Apostle Paul are the most obvious witness to this. Paul writes to specific city churches. Not only so, he addresses people by name in these city churches, a host of people by name. Not only does he greet them directly, but he mediates greetings from other people in the churches. Paul, we know, had traveling companions with him. Even if you dismiss Acts altogether, Paul mentions his traveling companions in his epistles. And these traveling companions and Paul himself bring news from the other city churches to those places where he's traveling. The early church was not an isolated set of independent communities which had independent lines of oral tradition which became their respective gospels. It was deeply interconnected, and it was interconnected not just in people traveling from one city to another, but in a documentary sense. If you look at First Clement, for example, you will find that Clement is very concerned as uh, a either the spokesperson for the Church of Rome or, at that point, the bishop of the Church in Rome, depending on when it was written. Clement is very concerned about what's going on in the Church of Corinth. Well, why is he concerned about what's going on in the Church of Corinth if this model of gospel authorship is true? And we have to think concretely here. Think concretely, what is the time period about which we are speaking? I, one almost gets the sense, as one reads especially that older form critical work, which still exercises uh, some degree of influence, one almost gets the sense that the kind of processes that are being described takes place in some ethereal time, which is disconnected from the concrete warp and woof of the Greco-Roman world and of the life of the, Judaish, or the, the Judean Jewish people. Uh, that, and I refer specifically to life within the province of Judea. But the actual evidence that we have is profoundly against this portrait. 
Another piece of evidence we have is canonical collection. Now, these canonical collections we find mostly extant in their present form come to the 4th century and later. But the similarities that we find among different canonical collections suggest that the canonical and constitutional tradition of the church goes back much earlier than when we get the documents themselves. In fact, I think part of the reason for the tradition of the apostolic authorship of things like the apostolic canons is I think the apostles did give to the churches a kind of canonical constitution. And as the bishops of the church in council and otherwise uh, legislated as they were permitted to do by the keys given to Peter and the apostles, as they legislated, their canonical legislation was included in these pre-existing canons, so that we call it collectively the canons of the Holy Apostles. It was not just made up. There's a very consistent pattern of canonical legislation that you see across the Christian world. Another example is liturgical texts, and in fact, the event of the liturgy itself. Now, liturgical texts, we have a variety of liturgical rites from across the Christian world, but there is certainly a golden thread which runs through them all, reflecting a common idea about what the liturgy is and what it constitutes. This is in the video about the theology of the liturgy, so I won't go into that. But what I will say is that in the liturgy, one finds the uh, realization concretely of the communion of the churches. Uh, the bishop commemorates other bishops. Now, I don't want to make a hard and fast claim about that because I haven't done a study of the practice of liturgical commemoration going back this early. But I do know that at least by the 4th and 5th centuries, there was a widespread practice whereby the names of bishops of the, in the communion of the churches was kept on the diptychs so that in the liturgy and in the celebration of the Eucharist, the names of those bishops were recited by the celebrant of the Eucharistic liturgy so as to establish in the one body the one church which is simultaneously a plenitude of particular churches. Another major set of evidence comes from Oxyrhynchus, Egypt. Now, uh, Oxyrhynchus, Egypt is a place from which we get lots and lots of papyri, not just Christian papyri, but other um, papyri as well. But what we find there is absolutely remarkable insofar as it suggests the unity of Christian culture across the network of churches across the Roman world. Now, part of the reason this is so significant is because Christianity is still a very distinct minority at this point in time. And it is not easy, especially without the internet, to maintain a distinctive and united subculture prior to the kind of coextensivity of Christianity with the empire writ large. Nevertheless, what we find is bishops writing letters of recommendation for Christians in their local church. If the, if the person is moving to another city, the bishop will write a letter of recommendation for him. You even find bishops who have a catechumen in a particular church, someone preparing for baptism, uh, identifying where he is in catechesis. Uh, there is uh, uh, evidence here for a standard program of catechesis, which took three years, which would take you through the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, and would teach you the Christian faith uh, through that. Uh, the Oxyrhynchus papyri suggests a distinctly united network of city churches across the Roman world and indeed beyond the Roman world. This network of city churches is very important because combined with the reality that in any period of history there is an overlap between generations, it makes it very difficult to explain how you can get a tradition about the authorship and origin of the New Testament books, which is fiction from top to bottom. This is especially the case if, uh, especially the case when we consider the way in which these documents were produced. But when you have an overlap between the generations, you know, the apostles are still living in the lifetimes of these second generation Christians. Not only that they're not only living, but they're active in this vibrant network. By the time of Clement, Peter and Paul are being referred to together in harmony. The notion of a permanent schism between Peter and Paul uh, is, is fictitious. 
But there's this generational overlap that raises the question, if Jesus's ministry and life was radically and profoundly different from the portrait given to us in the Gospels, then why do we lack evidence for a significant um, critique by that first generation? Now, I do think it's possible to overstate, oh, well, the apostles could correct errors which showed up. A person could say, well, maybe they did correct it and we just don't have records of that. But my question would be, if there was such a profound disjunction, and the disjunction was um, all on one side, you have, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if the suggestion is these Gospels have significantly moved in one direction away from the reality of the historical Jesus, well, then where is the evidence, at least in Christian critiques of arguments that they received? Where is the evidence for this? You could still say the apostles did make that critique and it's been lost. You can say that. But the fact that we lack evidence for it makes it a supposition rather than anything which has an argument in its favor. Uh, the simpler explanation is simply to say that the first generation never made such a critique. So, was there a Mathean community? No, there was no Mathean community. To give you a little bit of background, uh, in the, I believe it's the late 19th century, the idea developed that each gospel, each of the four biblical gospels, was written within and for a local community of Christians who had their own interpretation of who Jesus was and what Jesus was all about. Very often this interpretation was uh, reconstructed by academics to be in harsh conflict with the interpretation of the other alleged gospel communities. As clever as the idea is, and I mean, it got really clever at certain points in terms of, for example, uh, constructing a hypothetical, hypothetical source document, which is the source for those things which are common between Matthew and Luke, which aren't in Mark. Then reconstructing the three-stage history of that document. And then, this is called Q, which is short for the German quella or source. And then reconstructing the history of the Q community based on that three-stage manuscript history for a manuscript which doesn't exist. There is almost no chance of that having anything to do with reality. It is just 100% nonsense. But the thing is, the idea of a local author writing exclusively for his local community simply does not make sense in historical context. Richard Balcom has made this point um, very um, well in his collection of essays, The Gospels for All Christians. Book production in antiquity was specifically a cosmopolitan endeavor. It was not just for your local community. It was quite an undertaking. And if you wanted the book to have any influence, it would need to have been copied, which means if you don't need to write it down to distribute it, you probably won't end up doing so unless you have reason to expect that you will be circulating it non-locally in the future. The model of book production, which underpins not remember the production context allegedly for just one of the four gospels, but for four distinctive gospels, has no, as far as I'm aware, has no concrete example anywhere in antiquity. In other words, there's no positive evidence for any book being produced this way. So what is the reason for this profound confidence that four books were produced this way? I don't see any at all. Books in the ancient world, when they were made, were not copied by scribes after the original author in terms of the first time that they were copied. No, instead, the original production of the book involved a copying of multiple manuscripts and then a circulation of them around to their audiences. And we have evidence of this occurring within the early Christian church. For example, take the letter to the 
Ephesians, and letter to the Colossians. These letters by the Apostle Paul tell their recipients to also read other Pauline letters and send the letter that they received onto other churches. There's other evidence for this in early Christian texts. The letters of Polycarp and of Ignatius, which were written to specific audiences, become widely known very early. Indeed, the production of writings bearing witness to a tradition inspired and uh, upheld by the Holy Spirit, i.e. the concept of patristic writings, originates very early because it is part of the church's identity as the church. The church is the body of the incarnate word, the logos, the language of God, and writing becomes cr crucial to its identity very early in its history. So not only in the original book production do you have uh, multiple copies being made, but the recipients of these books would then make copies and circulate them around so that you would get, you know, for a very short period of time, kind of exponential growth of your manuscripts. Now, this is why I think you have such a early and abundant manuscript tradition for the New Testament documents. Now, you can say even at, you know, it's not abundant enough to have confidence to reconstruct the text of the New Testament. You can make that argument, but there's no debating the fact that relative to other documents of antiquity, our attestation, textually speaking, in terms of the number of manuscripts that we have in the original language, is, is better than any other document in the ancient world. Um, it's just an objective reality insofar as numbers are an objective reality. We have more manuscripts in the Greek language than we do for other texts of that time period in their original tongues. And, you know, to be clear, manuscript does not necessarily mean a complete text. It can mean a fragment of a text. Uh, it does include, in, in certain cases, complete texts. But um, we're using the same standard in terms of what constitutes a manuscript when we talk about other ancient texts. So the fact that early Christians seemed to associate themselves symbolically with books and with texts helps to explain why these were so widely circulated so early. And it raises difficulty with the idea that these gospels, which we now read canonically as for the whole church, were originally just meant for a local community and were intended to be in conflict with the portrait of Jesus that we find in the other gospels. Evidence also exists early on of a distinctive Christian book culture. Now, what I mean by this is that there is a distinctive Christian tradition of scribal practice and a distinctive Christian approach to books. Now, consider that in the second century AD, the early church, Christians constituted uh, less than 5% of the empire. Nevertheless, the number of codices from this time period, and the codex is kind of like our bound book in contrast to a scroll, which you unroll, the number of codices for this period of time, proportionally speaking, are extraordinary. I believe it is over half, in fact, um, and that in the third century, it's over 80% of codices. I could be wrong on those specific figures. Um, Larry Hurtado has done some good work on this. Uh, but the fact that the codex, this distinctive um, kind of book, which was originally used as a notebook. Why is it being adopted in such overwhelming numbers by the early Christians? It suggests that the adoption of written material and the transmission and copying of written material is important to their identity. Moreover, the fact that it's being adopted across a large geographical distribution strongly mitigates against the idea that the notion of a single network of churches is an anachronism. Sometimes you will hear scholars talk about the quote-unquote proto-Orthodox church. That is, they conceive of a world where there are like six or seven different varieties of Christianity, and none of these is winning out against any of the others. They're all basically equivalent to one another in terms of their influence. You know, there's a particular kind of Christianity that's in Egypt. There's a particular kind of Christianity that's in Syria, and so on and so forth. And then one of these became Gnosticism, and another one became uh, Orthodox Christianity, and won out in the end. That's just false. We know that it's false because we have documentary evidence for a single book culture 
meaning the continuing engagement among this specific network of city churches in relation to a specific canonical set of texts shows that group identity as a society was important and one's sense of identity is constitutive of that identity concretely speaking and not only do we have this canonical sense in terms of the new testament but you also have this developing sense of patristic writings of the spirit of god bearing witness in the history of the church by the writings of particular holy men of god these weren't these weren't canonical in the sense that the new testament was but nevertheless they were treated with a special kind of reverence the care was taken for their copying and transmission it's it's kind of a remarkable thing how early this goes you also find the nomina sacra the nomina sacra means the holy name now the holy name is a specific way of abbreviating names which were considered to be associated with the divine it exists mostly in those first three centuries uh, it is rooted most likely in jewish reverence towards the tetragrammaton that is yod he vav he representing the name of the lord that god revealed in the book of exodus the nomina sacra treated the name of Jesus and Jesus Christ, uh, among other divine names, with a special care. And it copied them uniquely among other words. The fact that this practice is not just a local variation, but seems to be spread across virtually the whole Christian manuscript tradition, though it's not always applied in the same way, suggest that the process by which the Nomina Sacra was adopted as a Christian scribal convention goes back to the first century. And that the adoption of a scribal culture was a matter of self-conscious intentionality on the part of the early church. We again see the importance that the early churches placed on continuity with that apostolic generation and with accurate transmission of those texts bearing witness to that apostolic generation. The self-conscious sense of identity and the perpetuation of that entity makes it very unlikely that the corporate memory of the church could have radically distorted the portrait of Jesus, which the first generation entrusted. Now, this doesn't rule out embellishments, but it does suggest that you are not going to get from a cynic sage, and I know that idea has kind of gone out of fashion, you're not gonna get from a cynic sage or even an apocalyptic prophet just an apocalyptic prophet in Ehrman's, who prophesied the end of the world, you're not going to get from there to the portrait of Jesus you have in Justin or Irenaeus or Ignatius in the second century. I mean, there's no explanatory tool to tell us why this apocalyptic prophet who had nothing to say to the nations and nothing relevant to say about them became proclaimed among the nations and dominant uh, in and that Gentile form became dominant. It's just one of those weird things. And we should prefer all things being equal, the model which provides an explanation to that which doesn't. Anonymity. This is another major issue. You often hear the Gospels are anonymous. Now, is it true? I think we often grant this right off and then we... Uh, and then we try to qualify that, but personally, I think we there's no real reason to grant that they're anonymous because they're not anonymous in a significant sense. They're anonymous in the sense that the text of the gospel itself does not include the name of its author. Though the gospel of John clearly refers to it being written by the beloved disciple. And, you know, this is he who is bearing witness to these things. And despite that clear attestation within the text of the gospel, Yoannin scholars, so-called, do not, do not accept an authorship by the beloved disciple and make up all sorts of silly excuses for why it doesn't mean what it clearly says. So, you know, the idea that, oh, well, if the gospels weren't anonymous, then they would take it more seriously. No, I, it, the end goal, the conclusion here, namely that the gospels are are not altogether reliable is the is the goal here whether implicitly or explicitly there is there are cultural issues at stake there is a secular interpretation of the world which is at stake and that's natural for our interpretation of the world to govern many of the ways that we look at text we look at evidence but if you're in denial of that fact 
well then you're not going to be able to critically correct for it and that's the big problem with the pretense of neutrality in new testament studies and in the sciences and elsewhere but anonymity in a significant sense i think is when you lack a title okay so if i write a book you know and it's a bound book but i don't mention my name sarah from hamilton or cabane within the you know from page one to page 199 if i don't mention my name there is that an anonymous book but if i have my name on the cover no it's not anonymous in a significant sense there is no evidence that the gospels ever circulated without titles now you will have some scholars cite manuscripts which do not name the author of the gospels in their titles here's the thing they don't have the title page attached it's been broken off it's a partial manuscript the, the fact that that there are people who actually cite this as an argument against them being titled with that is just shows either an amazing degree of self-delusion or an intent to deceive in my view so what is anonymity in the significant sense do we have any reason to think that matthew's gospel in particular is anonymous we have no reason at all to think that matthew's gospel is anonymous this has been gone over by other people before but what do you know the apostle matthew for the best tell me your favorite apostle matthew story well probably the first thing that comes to your mind about the apostle matthew is that he wrote a gospel this is his claim to fame so if you are a christian and you have this anonymous document and by the way you want you read bart ehrman he will give you a whole story about oh the early christians they found these anonymous documents they wanted to distinguish themselves from heretical sects of christianity which were in their opinion false so they had to pick the names of it he will tell you the story as if he's simply narrating something which happened every single word of it is invented now it could be an accurate reconstruction but the impression is given to the person who does not know how history is done and who's not familiar with the primary sources the impression is given that he's narrating historical facts which must be based by implication on actual historical texts where he is not and often Irenaeus is blamed for being the person who uh, first made up the attributions of the gospels but the problem is as we've discussed earlier you have this very wide distribution of manuscripts um, even if you're talking about fourth century manuscripts the issue is that you have a wide distribution already and i'm not just talking about individual manuscripts i'm talking about manuscript traditions because manuscript traditions don't depend so much on the date they depend on the kind of chain of transmission you have a family history of a particular manuscript if there is a mistake in one of them that all of its descendants will carry that mistake and so you can reconstruct kind of a family tree of uh, new testament manuscripts now whether we have the manuscript in these concrete manuscript in the second century or in the fourth or fifth century the diversity of manuscript traditions suggests a much earlier source for that which the manuscript traditions share in common and the fact that all of them bear the names of the authors we know them by today is extremely telling as to the actual reality of the authorship of these respective gospels so you know i've changed a lot of my views on many of the things over the past 10 11 years but the more that i've learned the more struck that i've been on how well the new testament stands up and not only the new testament but many of those arguments which i learned in an apologetic context at first i, I mean i'm many people learned the worst arguments for christianity I, I i really think that a lot of these arguments stand up very very well there are a few changes i'd make here and there but but by and large having you know in, engaged directly and with the secular academy having read their work um having been talked to them personally at some points i'm just I cannot overemphasize how unimpressed I am by their their arguments. Um, anyway, so the the ubiquity of the attribution to the Apostle Matthew is a fact to be explained, because the Apostle Matthew isn't famous for some other reason. So if you're inventing an apostle to pin on the gospel you have, why Matthew? It, it's not what you would expect to see if in fact matthew had no genuine association with this gospel and again i want you to think in terms of explanatory models we have a set of 
data or evidence or realities. The concrete evidence is that we have all of these manuscripts which bear the title Matthew. Now, what set of circumstances would have to be true in order to produce that state of affair? How do we explain that in a parsimonious way? Well, the most natural explanation by far is that there was a genuine association with the Apostle Matthew. That's why a relatively obscure Apostle was selected. Now, now we can move to the particulars of the gospel and its production context. Now, Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. This is kind of a, you know, everybody knows Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. Uh, evidence for that, you know, Jesus uh, is emphatic in this gospel in particular about his ratification of the Torah and the prophets, though it's also emphasized in the other gospels. Uh, Jesus is the new Moses here. His teaching is divided into five distinctive blocks, which correspond in terms of the number of blocks of teaching to the five book Torah. Jesus gives this, uh, gives the law on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, corresponding to God giving the Torah on Mount Sinai. By the way, see how Jesus is both Moses and God. Um, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he is Emmanuel, God with us. At the end of the Gospel, he says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. The personal presence of Jesus as the God of Israel is a thread running from beginning to end. And in the middle of the text, you have it set in a liturgical context where two or three are gathered in my name. And he says this in terms of, in the context of the keys being given to Peter and the apostles, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. God with us in the truest sense. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. That's the best and most simple explanation for why it has the features that it does. We also have another book of the New Testament, James. James is sometimes called the most Jewish book in the New Testament. Uh, some scholars have made the argument, in fact, that James is not originally a Christian letter. To the two references to Jesus, they suggest, were just inserted in there later. Now, it's a silly argument, but the fact that somebody has made it shows just how Jewish James really is in its set of emphases. James, of course, uh, or maybe not, of course, if you're not familiar, is Yaakov. It means Jacob. It's the letter of Jacob. Um, he is part of Jesus's household. He's the head of the Jerusalem church. Uh, and he writes a letter which is centered on the idea of endurance through persecution and being faithful in the midst of suffering. He addresses this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And importantly, James quotes the gospel of Matthew. Now, we want a parsimonious explanation, right? So most scholars will say the Gospel of Matthew was written to this audience of Jewish Christians, which had few or no Gentiles in it. That's what the that's what you know, is suggested, at least, by the text of the Gospel. It was written to this Jewish Christian audience, few or no Gentiles in it, uh, that existed in uh, the 80s AD. Now, here's the problem. The actual historical setting for an exclusively Jewish audience in the 80s AD is quite obscure, especially in the aftermath of the fall of the Jewish temple. However, we do have concrete historical evidence for a community of exclusively Jewish Christians associated with the person of James, and it is the year of Jesus' death and resurrection, 30 AD. That is the setting where we find the situation most like what is suggested by the internal evidence of the Gospel of Matthew. And there is a patristic tradition. Um, if someone can remember the name of it. I really need to write this stuff down, but there is a patristic tradition that Matthew is written uh, three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus in the context of the early Gentile mission. And I'm going to talk about that um, just in a few moments uh, and in, in, in relation to the persecution of Jewish Christians. Now, interestingly, if you hold, as I as I do, and I genuinely believe this, that Matthew's gospel is written um, within a year of Jesus's resurrection. Oh, and I want to clarify, um, Papias um, says, and pretty much all of our early witnesses say the same thing, that Matthew composed this gospel in the Hebrew language. 
Okay, so in the Hebrew language, I don't think it means Aramaic. I think it means Hebrew. Why Hebrew? Because Matthew was writing scripture and Hebrew was the language of scripture. Matthew echoes and connects his book with the very end of the Hebrew Bible. That's the book of Chronicles. Chronicles begins with the gene genealogy. It ends with a king being given dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. Matthew begins with the genealogy. It ends with the kingdom being given dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. Chronicles ends with a command to build the house of God. Matthew begins with Jesus coming to build the house of God where God is with us. The divine presence dwells with Israel. So um, a lot of academics will just totally dismiss this tradition. They'll say, oh, no, no, there was no, there's no evidence for Hebrew gospel. Well, excuse me, there is evidence for a Hebrew gospel. It's called the abundant witness of the early fathers who were in a position to know in a more direct way, not, not only in terms of having documents that we no longer have, but in terms of being direct heirs to this collective memory, given the singular unity and self-identity of these churches they were in a better position to know about the history of this period what is the evidence for a hebrew gospel it's that abundant early witness now an argument has been made in fact that the hebrew text of the gospel of matthew which is in the possession of the jewish community i'm not talking about jewish christians i'm talking about jews and uh, possession of the jewish community is in fact the original hebrew gospel of matthew and not a translation this was the gospel which was used as a source to critique christianity by many jews in the medieval period i would note and i won't go into this now that within judaism within the synagogue itself there how do i put this jesus was never fully successfully removed for example um Jews, not Christians, Jews, mainstream Jews, venerate, have a fast day for the martyrdom of Simon Peter. Uh, there are liturgical prayers in Judaism, uh, and I've checked this out as best as I can, and it seems to be legitimate. But if someone you know, says, oh, that's a myth, you can show me that is myth. Uh, there are prayers in Judaism that are attributed to Simon Peter. And yes, it is the Simon Peter, because you have Jewish authors who have to try to explain why exactly he's so well associated with christianity and they say well he was trying to win them back he pretends to be a christian to infiltrate them this is you know shimon kefa this is our peter um so the fact that they would have a hebrew text of the gospel of matthew you know it's not as implausible as you might think at first glance but even if you don't think that that is the text of the gospel of matthew uh it is notable that you have a variety of jewish christian sectarian traditions okay not every jewish christian group is a sectarian tradition so they're the nazarenes the nazarenes in the book of acts are an early it's an early name for those um jews who profess jesus as divine messiah who believe that the mission to the nations is legitimate who believe in the apostle paul who basically are orthodox in faith but they're associated with the church of jerusalem which is zealous for the torah and that was a community of people which existed for several centuries and now they're called nazarenes in the book of acts where just gentile uh gentile believers are called christians but there were a variety of Jewish Christian sects uh, some of which were zealously against the mission of the Apostle Paul now that aspect of them the Ebionites for example uh, resisted the Apostle Paul and accused him of being a heretic uh, that aspect of their beliefs is very interesting because I think that indicates that they are the descendants ideologically speaking of the Judaizers who whom Paul and the other apostles contended with in the New Testament. Now, the significance of that fact is that the Judaizers, you know, were driven out of the church. You know, in Acts chapter 15, it is a synodical decision of the apostolic synod. Remember, we're talking about the internal coherence of a single explanatory model. So if you're saying, well, we don't have evidence that Acts is accurate on this point. I'm just saying, if you take the historicity of the New Testament as a working hypothesis, how well does the facts taken together, how well do they nest together and how well do they explain the concrete evidence? So Acts chapter 15, it expels the Judaizers from the church in this apostolic synod. You know, it issues the first canon law, so to speak. And then the Judaizers, the Judaizers are Ebionites. They form this distinctive community. We know that they were in distinctive communities and were distinguished from the Nazarites, who believed that Jesus was divine, had a positive view of Paul, had a positive view of the Gentile church. But the interesting thing is that they have a Matthean gospel. 
not the Gospel of Matthew per se, but a, a gospel which was known to be written in the Hebrew language and was based on Matthew, synthesized with other Jesus traditions. There's other evidence for Matthean gospels like this in circulation, consistently in association with Jewish Christian sectarian traditions. Now, this is very telling because what it suggests is that these Judaizers who separate as a community from this network of churches very early on, they become kind of an independent community. They have one gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And that makes perfect sense pretty much only on this particular model, that the Gospel of Matthew was written for the whole church uh, and that uh, the Judaizers separated from that pre-existing church before any of the other Gospels were written. It is a very parsimonious explanation. Now, there's an Antiochian setting for the authorship of the Greek Gospel Matthew. As far as I can tell, there, uh, so far as I know or remember, there are certain words used in the Gospel of Matthew which make best sense in an Antiochian setting. Uh, there does seem to be uh, a plethora of references to Syria or Antioch, though that really isn't that um, weighty. Uh, but if you, you're going to pick the location, it makes best sense in Antioch. So here's the model that I'm suggesting to you. Now, I'm not the one to invent it. In 30 AD, I think Jesus was crucified and resurrected in the year 30. 30 AD, Jesus is crucified and resurrected. Church of Jerusalem formed as anointed with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You have 3,000 people who are baptized into the church, and they are faithful in the apostles' teaching, in the liturgy, uh, in the fasting, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, Jesus' teaching was not all public in that you have in the gospel instances where Jesus gives a public teaching and then he privately calls the apostles together and interprets it for them. Moreover, the apostles as good Jews knew that when God acted decisively in history to renew and glorify his covenant, it would be associated with a flurry of scriptural production. In each of the three instances where God transformed the nature and quality of his relationship with Israel, namely in the Mosaic period, in the period of the kings, and in the period of the prophets as the exile begins to dawn upon Israel and Judah. In each of these three periods, you have a flurry of new scriptural writings. And these scriptural writings are taken and they are deposited in the Ark of the Covenant and then in the temple. This is what distinguishes them from non-scriptural writings. There is no evidence documentary in terms of actual written record that the canon of the Old Testament ever developed. The actual evidence that we have indicates that the canon of the Old Testament was coextensive with the production of the books themselves. In other words, the authors of these books produced them to be the scripture. They produced them to bear witness of God's covenant. So Matthew does the same thing in Jerusalem in AD 30. Now, why does he use Hebrew? Well, because Hebrew is the language of scripture. It is also a liturgical text. Scriptures are that which is read in the synagogue and in the Holy Temple. And we read in the book of Acts about the Eucharistic celebration of the early church. We are told that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This is a reference to the Eucharist and the prayers, indicating a set order of worship, a liturgy. I think the order of this worship was given by our Lord Jesus during the 40 days in which he spoke to the apostles about the kingdom. There is a genre of literature in the early church. It has many problems in it, theologically speaking, but I think it does reflect some memory of a tradition from Jesus where Jesus teaches during the 40 days, and it's consistently associated with temple and priesthood and things like that. If you read the words of St. Basil, the quote-unquote, unwritten tradition of the church is consistently associated with the liturgical work of the church. So Jesus teaches the apostles the mystery of the kingdom during these 40 days, and that forms the basis of their baptismal rite of their liturgy, so on and so forth. And that corresponds typologically with the 40 years between Israel's exodus from Egypt and their entrance into the land, 
because Jesus' resurrection is a new exodus, and Pentecost is the inauguration of their entrance into the land, with Jerusalem being the new Jericho, because Jericho is lit on fire by the divine fire that is the Holy Spirit. Jesus, during that 40-day, uh, uh, pardon me, Pentecost is the is 10 days after the 40-day period. The, the end of the 40 days uh, corresponds to Jesus' ascension into heaven because the Israelites are said to go up into the land. Okay, so that phrase, go up, is consistently used. That's embarrassing. But there is a, a cor correspondence between Pentecost and the fall of Jericho. It's just, yeah. Uh, so 40 days correspond to the 40 years. Resurrection is the new exodus. The ascension, 40 days later, is the going into the land. The ascension is the crowning of Jesus to inherit the world as his kingdom. So they have this set order of worship, this liturgical tradition. And it's in that context that we're told that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. The fact that 3,000 are mentioned is also telling. Because the day of Pentecost echoes the descent of the Torah at Sinai. At the, in the Sinai covenant, God descended in glory on the holy mountain to make his presence known with thunder and lightning and other such manifestations. The day of Pentecost, in terms of the festival year of Israel, because there's an Old Testament festival called Pentecost, and that's the day in which New Testament Pentecost have, happened, commemorates the giving of the Torah. And so there is the divine presence that descends on the apostles with thunder, lightning, flames of fire, and so forth. And thunder and lightning is mentioned in Revelation 8, 1-4, which is a visionary form of the day of Pentecost. And so this three thousand and and on at the holy mountain, uh, the consecration of the Levites takes place in the killing of the three thousand leaders of the idolatrous worship of the golden calf. Now this is important because the killing of those three thousand worshippers of the golden calf pertains to the ordination to the priesthood of the tribe of Levi. It is the purification of the nation of Israel, which is a priestly duty. Well, death, what happens to these 3,000, is typified and enacted in baptism. It is simply that you die unto resurrection. So the apostles have a priestly role in relation to this 3,000. The apostles' teaching is embodied in the teachings of our Lord. It is the tradition of the 12 apostles concerning what our Lord Jesus said. And Matthew, I think if you had a gospel called the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles, it is basically the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is not writing so much his own particular take on the ministry of Jesus as he is serving as a scribe for the tradition of the Twelve Apostles in general. Uh, as Craig Keener in his uh, book Historical Jesus of the Gospels describes, uh, Jewish, um, a Jewish, and in fact it's not just a Jewish thing, but Jewish um, practices involve the rigorous memorization by students of their teacher's um, instruction. Now, whether it was that, uh, whether these exact practices were practiced by the apostles in relation to Jesus, we cannot say. But what we can say is that there is a sense in which tradition is formally transmitted. Paul and the other apostles, they refer to this kind of sense. Paul, for example, refers to a deposit which he received and then entrusts to Timothy, who is meant to transmit it uh, to others after him, there is a sense of a tradition which is guarded and kept by the twelve as those who sit on the twelve thrones of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, let's remember that this phrase in Matthew 19 is elusive to language that is used in the Old Testament about the Levites, as Michael Barber points out. And the Levites, their role among other things, was to instruct the nation in the proper interpretation of the scriptures. And so Matthew's gospel, as a Hebrew text, because it's a liturgical and scriptural text, makes perfect sense at this point. And then, three years later, fulfilling the 70 weeks of Daniel, the gospel goes to the nations. It's the chronology of Acts, the first year 
uh, is Acts 1 to 1 to 9. Paul, I think, converts within the first year. And then there's a three-year period. We can get this from Galatians in conjunction with other texts. There's a three-year period uh, at the end of which the 70 weeks are brought to their climax. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just set that aside. It's not that important for our purposes. Uh, but the gospel goes to the Gentiles. I think this is described in visionary form in Revelation chapter 11, which shows it in terms of the three and a half days, because the second half of the 70th week in the book of Daniel represents three and a half years, but of course it's signified in terms of three and a half days. And we see in Revelation chapter 11, this isn't essential to my argument, so you can ignore it if you're if it's over your head or if you just don't agree with the, with the approach to the book of Revelation, but we're told that 7,000, there's an earthquake in the city, and the language for the earthquake um, resembles that language in the Gospel of Matthew for the resurrection of Jesus. Earthquake in the city, 7,000 died. 7,000 is the remnant of Israel uh, who did not bend the knee to Baal. And remember, death is an image of baptism, so it's death into resurrection. And the rest beheld those who were martyred. They looked at their body. This is the two witnesses, but they're described as having a singular body. So I think it's the church in their capacity as Moses and Elijah, or the, um, the church in their capacity as a joint witness of Jesus Christ. Uh, the rest gaze upon their body and then give glory to the God of heaven when this early church is vindicated. Now, glory to the God of heaven. God of heaven is a Gentile name for God not only in Israel, but also elsewhere in, in the ancient world. So anthropologists talk about the sky god phenomenon, where many tribes from around the world, they worship one creator, supreme god. Even if they believe in other deities, they believe that there is a supreme god who is different from all the rest, and they call him the god of heaven or the god of the sky or the father of heaven. Uh, and in the Old Testament, in fact, the Gentile name for god is the god of heaven because he is the God who rules everything else, and in the heavens is placed the sun, moon, and stars, which was made to rule the day and the night. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, so the rest glorify the God of heaven. That's, this is the Gentiles, so the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And what are we told in Acts chapter 11? In Acts chapter 11, we are told that at Antioch, they were first called Christians. The center of gravity for the early church moves from being just Jerusalem to being a distributed balance between Jerusalem and Antioch. Antioch being the center for Gentile Christianity. So think about it in this sense. Matthew's already written his Hebrew gospel. He's already written this liturgical text for his people. But now there is an expansion of the gospel to go to the Gentiles who can't read Israel's liturgical language, who can't read their scriptural and religious language. So Matthew, in Antioch, in the center of gravity for Gentile Christianity, composes his gospel in the Greek language. Now, I hesitate to say translated, because the notion of translation includes within itself the idea that you're looking at an original text, and you are doing your best to interpret what the author intended in writing that original text, and then you replicate that intention by translating the words into another language. Now, Matthew was not translating his original gospel, even though I think they basically have the same content. He was not translating his original gospel. He was producing a Greek gospel of Matthew because, because he knew the intent, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he knew his own intention in composing the Hebrew gospel, he could use the word that he knew was most appropriate in Greek to convey his meaning, use um, uh, numerical devices that work with the number of Greek words, so on and so forth. And this is why you've got the tradition that Hebrew Matthew was written first, and then you have the manuscript evidence of Greek Matthew, and there's no contest at all that it was the Apostle Matthew who wrote this gospel. Okay, so if Matthew wrote first, what do we do with Mark? This is the synoptic problem. If you're not familiar with the synoptic problem, it basically addresses the question of why are Matthew, Mark, and Luke so similar? Now, some people would say, well, because it's the same Jesus who teaches. And that maybe goes part of the way, but the reality is we've got the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is quite different. Now, I firmly believe that they're all historical. Um, they're all the Word of God. Uh, they capture different aspects of Jesus' teaching, but it's clear Matthew, Mark, and Luke are capturing a particular, um, you know, there's a, a threefold image of this approach to Jesus, and then the Gospel of John uh, crowns it or sums it up. But clearly there's a three and one relationship here. 
So, the scholarly consensus is that Mark wrote first. Now, there's no evidence that Mark wrote first in the sense of actual documentary evidence. There's no actual historical writer, pagan or Christian, none at all from the ancient world who speaks about the production of the Gospels and says Mark wrote first. Nevertheless, it has been concluded that Mark must have written first because Mark was shorter. And that's the argument. Mark was shorter. As I talked about in the beginning of the video, uh, the uh, scholars often are unable to distinguish between seeing Mark as the mediator between Matthew and Luke and actually seeing Mark as the source independently for both Matthew and Luke. It's just a, a flaw of logic. It's, it's, it's sloppy thinking. Now, there's clearly a relationship between Mark and Matthew. Mark roughly follows out Matthew's outline. Mark used the Apostle Peter as a source. We won't get into that here, but uh, he did. Um, and then John wrote his gospel as a compliment to Mark, because John is the theme of two witnesses, one of which is the beloved disciple, the other of which is the Apostle Peter. But if Mark and Matthew are related, but Matthew came first, well, then Mark must have abridged sections of Matthew. Now, there's other evidence for this, but here's the strongest evidence. Okay, this, this is Mark chapter 4. It contains, I believe, three parables of our Lord. I think we'll, uh, th there's one of them which is uniquely in Mark. Uh, it's one of the only uniquely Markan uh, pericope, or sections of teaching, in uh, the Gospel. Uh, but it corresponds to Matthew 13, which has a much longer set of parables. Now, here's what the evangelist says. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, this is very significant because we are given an explicit notice that Mark or that Jesus has given a broader body of teaching here and that within the framework of this broader body of teaching, Mark is presenting a selection. In relation to Matthew 13, this makes best sense as an abridgment. Say the same thing here, Mark 12, 38. And in his teaching... He said, we are the scribes and so forth. In his teaching, Mark, relying on Matthew, nevertheless notice, notes that he is selecting from a broader body of teaching. This is an explicit, I mean, the, rea the, the fact that it's not a very long note, or you might gloss over, isn't significant. Why did Mark write this way? Now, perhaps if the tradition was universal, that Mark wrote first, we might dismiss this or might try to find a different explanation. But the reality is that all witnesses of whom I'm aware, and you know, I, I can make mistakes, maybe there's there's an outlier somewhere, but all the ancient witnesses of whom I'm aware, all of the witnesses who are quoted and all the witnesses whose manuscripts are extant, still exist, say that Matthew wrote first. There's nobody who says Mark wrote first. Matthew came first. Perhaps you could make the argument that Hebrew Matthew is something different than Greek Matthew, and well, Mark was the first of the Greek Gospels to write. You can make that argument. That's all right. But I, I don't think it's the most parsimonious explanation. The fact that Matthew is said to come first by the documentary evidence we have, and what do you know? We have evidence within Mark that Mark is abridging the Gospel of Matthew, I think is extremely suggestive. So I think all of this collectively works together to vindicate the traditional approach to the Gospel of Matthew as an authentic production of the Apostle Matthew, who is, of course, one of the Twelve, who's writing on behalf of the Twelve, who's giving us one of the four um, historically reliable and accurate witnesses to the teachings of our Lord. So I hope you enjoyed this video, and I will see you tomorrow.